This is Lent on Table Radio. Today's sermon was originally preached on Sunday, April 10th by Anna Spray. My soul takes his refuge. Hi there, table friends. This week we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, beginning at the 14th verse. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Well, I want to tell two stories before we look at this text. First, uh, a friend of mine got pregnant uh, in the early days of the pandemic, and this was her first successful pregnancy, and she was almost immediately told by her doctors that this child would have significant neurological disability and would likely not survive. So for months, I prayed with another group of women for this child, and he was born healthy and strong. And now at a year old, he is so far neurologically normal and very healthy. The second story is of a two-year-old child, a little girl, who is having daily seizures. And for months, she has been tested, poked, and prodded, She has tried many medications and treatments, many tests, and over 45 of us pray for her every single week. And still, she is in and out of hospital, having seizures, and no solution has been found for her cure. Why is it that sometimes people are healed and sometimes they are not? Well, Jesus seems to suggest in this passage that it has to do with our faith, that our prayers are directly linked to our faith. Our faith is linked to our prayers. As we continue in Matthew 17, uh, Jesus has just taken his inner circle of Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to have a transforming, transfiguration experience, and now they're back on the ground amongst the crowds. On top of the mountain, Jesus came into special contact with the glory of his Father. He shone with it, the text said. Uh, And now at the foot of the mountain, he comes into contact with the misery of humanity. From the divine realm to the human realm. From the sublime to, well, the difficult. Back to ministering in the mess of everyday life with its everyday problems. And the man approaches Jesus and pleads with him to heal his son who is having seizures. And Jesus rebukes him, the disciples. Uh, We're not initially certain, but it seems that while he was away up the top of the mountain, the nine remaining disciples that did not go with him tried but were unable to heal this boy. 
So perhaps it is them that Jesus is rebuking for their failure. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed right at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Well, the demon seems to be the root cause of the problem. In a way, Jesus says a word and it is gone. But the disciples naturally want to know why they were unsuccessful in their own attempts. And Jesus replies, saying it is because of their faith. And he talks about mustard seeds yet again. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, he says, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So when we pray and people aren't healed, is it because our faith is too small? Is it our fault? In the original Greek, three times the word unable is used in this small passage. Uh, Verses 16, 19, and 20. Um, In verse 20, he is literally saying, nothing is unable, impossible, for you. What the disciples can or cannot do certainly seems to be the focus here, and not the healing itself. The question is not, how is this boy going to be healed, but why were the disciples unable to heal him? I keep thinking that this story is so much like Moses coming down the mountain after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And he comes down to find the Israelites had built a golden calf in his absence. I just want to turn to Exodus 32 and read a little bit of that. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So they bring all the gold to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast into a shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, they said, rather, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So they rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, uh, indulged in revelry. Then it's the Lord who tells Moses, go down because your people have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And then Moses pleads on behalf of his people. He, he asks God to have mercy on them. Verse 15, Moses turned down, turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. He burns up the calf in fire. He admonishes Aaron. He chastises him. And Aaron says, do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. And Moses saw that the people were running wild, that Aaron had let them get out of control. So he stood at the entrance to the camp, And said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rallied to him. This is a really key moment in the life of Israel, right? They have this 
high point moment of the Ten Commandments being given, the law given by God. And just at the moment of reception, they abandon worship of God and turn to other false gods. In fact, they fashion those gods themselves by their own hands. And it's similar here in Matthew, this high point of the transfiguration and the disciples are similarly messing things up. Jesus had just been meeting with Moses and Elijah, who represented together the law and the prophets. He comes down the mountain just as Moses himself had done, and Jesus finds chaos has ensued in his absence. And much like Moses, or like a prophet, he rebukes his foolish followers. So what do we learn from both of these instances? Well, the transfiguration was about authoritative power, right? Jesus is revealed. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And just as that is happening, his disciples struggle because they lack power and they're unable to help this boy. They cannot produce power to heal him on their own without God's help. So the question remains, where is God's power? Where is his true authority located? Remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, here is my son, listen to him. And now in the place of need, at the bottom of the mountain, the initial words of this despairing father are, here is my suffering son. Have mercy on him. It's so interesting how scripture is speaking to us in reflecting itself. Divine majesty is presented along human misery. The world which does not acknowledge the sovereignty of God is in this place of chaos and torment and desperate need of the one to whom we need to listen. The Gospel of Matthew tells of several of these third-party healings, Um, healings done or attempted by the disciples and not by Jesus himself, uh, and they have mixed success. Um, Wherever people lost control of themselves, the ancient world um, thought of this as the presence of evil spirits at work in their midst. As the father recounts to Jesus, this boy, he keeps falling over and over again into the fire one day and into the water the next. Falling over and over is a type of self-destructive behavior that he saw as attributed to the presence of evil. We might diagnose such patterns today as addiction, compulsions, or obsessions. Um, There are invisible but potent realities that invade us to possess us. It is interesting to me that Jesus and his disciples had a reputation for helping people, helping people in need, which is really wonderful. Um, But yet they cannot seem to help this one boy. Remember back in chapter 10, Jesus had given his disciples authority over unclean spirits. So for this very purpose that they could cast them out and heal people. So what went wrong? Here again, the disciples are not shown in victorious possession of Jesus' miraculous power. Uh, Here again, they fail. By this point in Matthew, we know the story here. The disciples are not the heroes of faith. We know that Jesus is the hero. Time and time again, we see that the disciples are not in possession of their own power. They're weak and awkward 
and ineffective. And I think that is the thing that Jesus is rebuking. Jesus is speaking directly to them here. Oh, faithless and messed up generation. How long do I have to be here with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Is basically what he's saying. And this echoes Moses' own complaint (laughs) against the people of Israel. Perverse and crooked generation, whose faults have proved you no children of God's, for you are mutinous generation, sons who are not to be trusted. And now we see the prophet, like Moses, complains also because he feels frustration. And he feels this because he cares for them. And these are the two faults of this generation, this group of disciples he's complaining about. First, um, the Greek word is apistos, faithless, unfaithful, or disloyal. They're not being true to their faith in God. And second, they are perverse or twisted, crooked, um, deviant in some way. They've become twisted in their human nature so that they don't trust God. When we do not pray, when we don't bring our need to the Lord, we are being unfaithful to our commitment to God and our trust in him. Given all the chaos that is in the world and the evil that we see on a daily basis, one of our chief responsibilities as Christians is to bring the attention of that suffering world to God, to pray each and every day, on behalf of the world. Our own unwillingness to pray becomes a social problem. When we fail to pray, we are patterning ourselves after our surrounding culture, and we are not following in the way of our Messiah, Jesus. We become, in that way, products of the society around us, the chaos that we live in. We reveal that rather than having our feet firmly planted in God's kingdom, we have our feet firmly planted here on earth, which means we're not doing our job of bringing a hurting world before God and asking him to intercede. Exasperated with them, Jesus asked them to bring the boy here to me. Um, This is the same words he used about the five loaves and two fish some chapters earlier. And seemingly, the unhealable boy is restored. In Jesus' hands, both problems of food and sickness can be solved. So, I think perhaps the problem was the disciples were guilty of trying to do something on their own strength. Do we do the same? When we think about caring for the world, caring for others, Do we operate too often out of our own strength and and not out of the Lord's? Do we sometimes place our faith in creatures rather than our creator? Um, It would seem from this story that the gift Jesus gave to the disciples of authority over unclean spirits is not a gift that they can just simply use whenever they want or without praying first. Jesus rebukes the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was healed on the spot. Jesus simply speaks, and it is done. Some indication that he is so close to the Father that any time he calls on God for his power, it happens. 
Evil is subservient to Jesus' authorities, and the disciples want to know why didn't it work for them? How does Jesus have an ability that they do not? And that's a good question. Why are we not often able to help people who come in need to us? Jesus says, for a man, I tell you, nothing will be impossible for you. And yet the root of our problem, as Jesus presents it here, is our faith. We are believers who have trouble believing. We are not exactly what others who come to us for help expect Christians to be. The diagnosis is relatively simple. Our powerlessness is because of our too small faith. Frederick Bruner puts it this way, we tend to locate our problems in less deep locations, in our temper, uh, weaknesses, habits, lusts, addition, addictions, moods, vanities, or ambitions. But in fact, the root of all such bitter fruit, he says, is our failure to believe God. This has been our problem since Genesis 3. Unbelief is the root out of which all other sins grow. The solution Jesus presents to this problem is faith like a grain of mustard seed. It's a little confusing. (laughs) Our problem is little faith, but the solution is also to have a little faith. But I think what he's implying is that faith coupled with prayer is a successful combination. Bruner calls this prayer is simply faith breathing. Faith and prayer together must exist. Um, Separated, neither of these trusts um, can only trust in its own competence. Prayer and faith are both marked by an openness to God, ready to receive from him, but they necessitate one another. So how do we find the ability to help others? By believing in God enough to pray. And why were the disciples unable to heal this boy? Because they didn't have enough faith to pray first. It seems that they had assumed, due to past experience, that they just had intrinsic power within themselves, that they could say the word and the boy would be healed. But they forgot that they needed to pray first. And they soon learned that prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. At the beginning of this chapter, when Jesus is identified as God's son, we are told, listen to him. And perhaps in order to receive the ability to help others, we need to first talk to him as well. For if Jesus is the source of healing power, he's certainly the right person to talk to. This divine human conversation of listening and talking needs to continue to take place. And we as the church, it is our life's breath to listen to God and then talk to God. We are not told that if we have faith as big as a mountain, we can move mountains. That's not the equation Jesus lays out. We are not told if you believe much, God will do much. No, Jesus' equations are pretty generous. Just to have a little faith, the smallest amount, then you can say to this mountain, and it will move. A little faith, a little prayer. Thankfully, the bar for us is not too high. 
Now, given that generosity, what Jesus proposes still seems far beyond our expectations. I'm not sure that I would say, share the same excitement to move mountains, but he does believe that it is possible for us as his disciples to become so excited about the power of God that is available to us, even in our little faith, that mountains, he says, could be moved. And sometimes maybe our prayers do feel that big. Do we know that from our small faith, we're able to ask God for big things? Perhaps Jesus is saying to us, your faith doesn't have to be impressive or strong, but that's okay. Pray like you mean it, and God will take care of the rest. Verse 20, nothing will be impossible. Nothing will be unable for you. This is the third and final time that word is used in this story. And this is the time he uses it to banish inability from their lives. Even as he chastised them, rebuked them, he is now restoring them. Nothing will be impossible, he says. But the goal of this story, I think, is to inspire just enough faith so that we will believe God enough to pray, to ask. Our prayers might be feeble, but God still agrees to meet with us and to hear us, no matter how small our faith may be. What is important to remember that we continue to participate in this exchange of listening and talking to God. For if we talk to God without listening to him, no matter how much faith we think we have, we can't honestly say we know what it is he wants. Both listening and talking to God is necessary for us. It's interesting to me that uh, the original King James version of this passage um, had this sentence a little different. It said, uh, this kind of demon does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Uh, Those last two words were removed because they weren't present in the oldest and the best examples of Greek manuscripts that Bible translators were working from. Um, It's interesting because it's also repeated in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, where these last two final words, and fasting, were also not contained in the oldest and best records of Mark. And um, theologians posit that that copyists later added these words because to them, perhaps, prayer alone seemed too simple. Uh, And the temptation is that fasting might make us look at ourselves as somehow involved in the power needed for miracles to take place. Uh, And to me, it seems like the whole golden calf problem all over again. But as we see in the text here, tiny faith and simple prayer force us to look to God as the only true source of power. There is a place for fasting in our faith practice, but in Jesus' teaching, that is not a condition for receiving God's help. Seeds are living things, and so is prayer. Even if our faith is small, it is still alive. And God can do wonders with those things and with us that will help people more than we are helping them right now. 
And I think it's important for us to confront our own feelings around asking God for miracles, um, because the church has a long historic tradition of interceding for others and seeing miraculous things take place. I think it's tempting to dismiss passages like this because we feel insufficient. But that doesn't mean that God is insufficient. And I think to that temptation, we should say to ourselves, I need to pray. (laughs) Lord, teach me how to pray. And that's how I'm responding to this passage this week. As I think about this little girl and pray for her daily, Maybe my own inability needs to be healed, much like the disciples. Maybe I need to spend more time listening to Jesus and talking to him, uh, engaging with him and pleading for this little girl. And once having listened to him and talked with him, we all go out into the world expecting God will work through us to bring helping power to a hurting world. So each week as we gather together, as we come to church, as we meet with our small groups, come expectantly and then go out in the world prayerfully. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we don't claim to understand all that there is to know about you and what needs to take place for miraculous things to happen. But we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us enough faith, even a small amount of faith, to ask, to intercede, to plead on behalf of this world. So, Lord, would you increase our faith, teach us to pray, and help us to be faithful as you are faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have mercy, oh God, have mercy on me. Thank you for listening to Table Radio, an extension of the Table Church in Victoria, B.C. Music for this episode provided by Richard Charter. For more information, go to richardchartermusic.com. For more information on the Table community, go to tablechurch.ca. My soul.